Hello and welcome to our new episode of OTT Talks. I'm Andrea Bertel and I coordinate the Unthink Tanks program at OTT. OTT Talks is a series of friendly conversations with thought leaders and practitioners in the field of evidence-informed policymaking and the think tank sector. In today's episode, we continue with our candid talk about funding series, exploring the crucial role of program officers and getting to know the people who fill these positions. And to help us further unpack this topic is Dana Schmidt, Program Director at the Kidna Giving, a philanthropic fund that joins with critical thinkers, innovators and practitioners to advance girls' educations in the developing world. In this role, Dana leads the grant-making strategy on early childhood development and co-lead grant-making on adolescent skills and mindsets. Before joining Equidna in 2016, Dana was a program officer at the William and, and Flora Hewlett Foundations, where she helped to develop a, and run a 10-year, 125 million grant-making initiative to improve the quality of education that children receive in the developing world. Welcome, Dana. I'm very happy that you're here with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, right. Let's get right into the questions then. How would you describe the role of a program officer? What are your key tasks and functions? Yeah, so um, I think of the role of a program officer as sort of three core responsibilities. Um, the first is to really help set a grant-making strategy for the work of the foundation. Um, and so that's really kind of working to understand where we can best influence the wider field for impact um, and kind of setting the parameters for how grant decisions will be made. So that's kind of the first core, core function. The second is to really find, fund, and support organizations who are advancing that strategy. So I think this is probably the, um, in many ways, the, the heart and soul of being a program officer is figuring out who are great organizations to grant make to that are hopefully helping to advance change in the world along the lines of, of that grant making strategy. And then the third piece is to really learn from those grants that we make and from the wider field in order to, um, I think one, influence future strategy, right? Sort of feed back into that first function of setting strategy to feed into the second function of really supporting organizations in the best way possible. And also to, in some ways I think, and this varies from one organization to the next, how much directly program officers are involved in influencing decisions and, and perhaps playing kind of a direct role in that. In some instances, I think in, in my case, uh, it's more around hopefully influencing other funders through what we're learning um, to um, sort of come alongside us and, and help support some of the impact we're trying to have. So, so setting the grant making strategy, finding funding and supporting organizations and learning uh, from the wider field and influencing the wider field as well. Okay. I think are the three, yes. I have a couple of follow-up questions of that. You, you yeah. mentioned the first one is setting the grant-making strategy. How do you go about that? Uh, who do you work with? How do you consult? How long is that cycle? How does that work? Yeah, so I'm a strong believer that many foundations set strategies that are much too short. So I think kind of the minimum period for a grant-making strategy should be seven years at minimum uh, and you see many foundations setting strategies three or four years long i think that's not very realistic because once you fix a grant making strategy often it takes a, a, a while to sort of 
find the, the grantee partners who to fund in that area. That could take a year to do that. It often takes grantee partners a while to get up and running. That's another year. You're already two years into your three-year strategy before the work has really even started in a serious way, let alone you know leaving time for grantees to really pursue work, iterate, learn, adjust, and, and learn from that. And so, so I think you know, a seven-year minimum strategy period is really critical. Um, in terms of kind of process for that, we have, I, I mean, I think there's lots of different inputs that we gather as we set our strategy. So one is just understanding kind of the current state of literature and, you know, in my case, in the field of girls' education, what are what do we understand about what's working, what's not, and what we don't yet know? Um, one is talking to others in the field, uh, grantee partners uh, being a key part of that and uh, other experts. Um, in the field to understand their sense of where some key gaps are. Um, and then there's also, you know, the uh, actual interaction with those um, key decision makers within the foundation and what they, what their uh, passions and interests are as well. And really figuring out how can you kind of find where there's a really important uh, something in the world that needs to happen that grant making could potentially actually influence and how that aligns with the passion and interests of the governing body um, for the for the foundation and and um, and really you know finding that intersection um, to set the strategy. And usually, how long does this process take? Because you mentioned that it should be a seven-year cycle from the moment that the strategy has been launched. How long does it take to prepare the strategy? So when in, when in the cycle mm. of the seven years you start beginning to prepare the for the one. next cycle? Yeah. So I, I think it can vary. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a delicate balance between allowing enough time to be thoughtful about it and and not allowing so much time that you get bogged down in strategy, which I think many of us have experienced um, in, in that as well. So, but I think at, uh, at probably realistically um, kind of starting reflection and, um, you know, if you're coming, uh, when I started at Echidna, I helped develop our very first strategy. So we're still in our first strategy cycle, I should say. But, you know, from experience at the Hewlett Foundation, I would say it takes, you know, at least nine months, if not a, 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 not a bit longer, if you're doing it in alongside, you know, other grant making priorities, right? And so it's kind of, you continue on your existing strategy while doing a little bit of, you know, uh, retrospective, um, refreshing, understanding kind of what has worked in the existing strategy, talking to others, etc. Um, I mean, I think if we could do it even faster, I think it would be better. But I think realistically, given the number of stakeholders involved, sometimes it can take uh, a longer time period as you if, if you don't want to hit pause on other priorities. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And uh, I, I got uh, something interesting about what you mentioned as well on uh, the learning strand of your work. So you learn to to influence future strategies, you learn to influence and to support the funders, but you also learn to influence other funders. So on the questions of influence, what's uh, what do you think, what is your role, but also what do you think is the role of, of uh, foundations in general to influence policy and practice? I know that you, most, you work through your grantees usually for that, but is there uh, any strand of that work that you do or what do you think about that, if that should be Done or not? So it's a great question. We at Akinda Giving do not work directly to influence policy and practice. We fund partners who are better positioned to do that than 
um, you know, a set of individuals sitting in San Francisco, California, very far from many of the countries in which our, our grantee partners are working, right? So they're they're much uh, better positioned to, to do that work, I think. On the flip side, I think among funders in many ways, uh, as a fellow funder, we have the privilege of being in conversations and circles and having influence over other funders in a way that grantee partners do not, right? So I think we see a, we see more of a role for influence among peer funders than among, you know, governments in countries in which we we do not live or vote, right? Um, so I think other institutions are are structured differently, perhaps have staff in those countries who have mm -hmm. different positions um, and and levels of credibility and um, you know, even more of a right, I guess I would say, to kind of play a role in influence. And I think, um, you know, in those instances, I think there's a different set of opportunities available. Um, but I think I think it really depends on the position of a funder and its staff, um, what level of influence is appropriate, I suppose. Great, thanks. And uh, following with the with with the functions, what uh, what do you think is the skill sets that's required to do to to do this role well? Yeah, that's such a such a good question, and obviously there are many, as with any job. I think um, I think one is really just the ability to absorb information. Um, I mean, as a funder, you sit very much at with a bird's eye perspective on the field. So being able to kind of understand how the pieces interact and add up and, and make connections across different sources of information that you have access to is certainly one key piece. A second key piece is being able to really assess organizations and uh, their capabilities and be able to make a judgment about whether an organization is, is going to be effective at pursuing the change that, uh, that they that they want to pursue. But I also think there's a, an awful lot about being a funder that involves, I don't know if this is a skill set per se, but navigating kind of gray spaces um, and, and being able to sort of live with the fact that there's not a, the, the, you know, things aren't always black and white. Um, you're often balancing across sort of competing values almost that are important. Um, so to give an example, you know, one of the key key values, I suppose, is to be a good steward of resources, right? To make good decisions about where the dollars go so that they are being used towards affecting social change. And I think that sort of desire to really make the most effective use of scarce resources means uh, that you have kind of this impulse to say, let's do lots of due diligence before making a grant. Let's really try to make sure that we understand the ins and outs of how this organization works and what they're trying to do and do we you know how effective have they been historically what do other people think and getting you know gathering a lot of input to make the best decision possible about that um, potential grant but on the flip side as much as you value effective use of resources i think also a value of efficiency and the sense of urgency to address really critical problems and a sense of the need to respect grantees time which is a valuable resource in and of itself, right? And that pushes you more in the direction of making quicker decisions, not asking too many questions of organizations, not taking too long 
um, to actually decide whether or not to make a grant. And so I think a lot of, so one huge skill set for program officers is really threading the needle between different priorities and, and being able to sort of make sound judgments about, you know, how to, how to balance between, between different priorities. Um, and then the last thing I would say that you have to be really good at as a program officer is letting go. Um, because I think ultimately most of the, the work not that it's not that program officers don't work hard, but the actual work to advance social change is mostly happening by grantees. And you have to be comfortable with them taking the lead and with them getting the credit and uh, sort of being the behind the scenes support um, for their success. And so I think, you know, for some personalities that can be really hard, right? If you're used to being a doer, moving into this role of supporter, I think can be can be a challenge. It's an important part of the job that's that's a good uh, description of being a, a supporter of others doing and i really also like this uh, what you mentioned on uh being good and making judgments about which organizations would work and, and what what which ones would not work could you elaborate a, li a little bit more on that like what makes you what gives you that hunch what gives what gives you the ability to thread the needle what uh what is flexibility you you speak about i know it's a juggling act uh, but anything that you can more you can say about that yeah i, I suppose in some ways it's you know Part of and we may get to some of these themes later on. Part of what makes makes the job particularly difficult is because it is ultimately quite subjective, and so um, you know some of it is built on um, experience working with organizations and and getting a feel for you know what effective leadership how effective leadership tends to present itself. Um, and other things that that ultimately also you know are you could. Um, are, are very subjective and and subject to all kinds of bias that are are problematic, right? And so, um, so on the one hand, you know, it would be great if you could really pin this down as a science and say, you know, if you hit these five criteria, it's very likely to be successful, and that you could objectively assess those criteria and um, and make a decision. Um, I think it's. Uh, I don't think it's that easy. Um, I, I wish it were. If, if I, I hope other if others are out there and feel like they have made it into a science and can can correct me, it'd be great. So I think it's. I think you know the pieces that I tend to look for are one, um, is the organization able to clearly articulate what they're trying to do, and why they're trying to do it. Um, and why they think the way they're doing it is is likely to succeed, um, and and just you know having a, a clear sense of where you're trying to go and um, and how you're trying to get there, I think is is really critical. So then the second piece though is does the organization sort of have the you know are they set up and have the people that they need to to kind of carry out the work as they envision it, but also to sort of consistently be learning about what is and isn't working and adjusting as they go. So do they have kind of this, um, a mindset towards iterating and learning and uh, and shifting their approach in response to what they find out? 
and do they have the staff that that is required to make that happen um and do they otherwise have you know sort of the the governance the the people and the resources they need to carry out the work that they envision for themselves and i think you know like i said a lot of that ends up being being quite subjective <laughs> um uh but i think you can get a sense of you know how um how leaders talk about the work that they do what what sort of questions are they asking um that you know can give you clues as to do they have this learning mindset um around their work um are they able to speak about you know what they've learned um with some depth um etc so i don't know how well that answers your question but oh that's um, great i've so it's articulate uh, people having the people needed to do uh, to adjust and to learn as, as they go along, and then the final one. Uh, let me ask just one follow up questions on this, and then we'll move on to the next one. You mentioned governance as as something that you look for, but governance I find it's a kind of an elusive term. It's be it's used by so many people in so many different ways, meaning so many different things. So what is it that you, what part of aspect of governance do you do you take into account? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think it is, a, it is a tricky one. Um, but I think, you know, are, is there um, strong leadership in place? Is there a board to which that leadership is accountable? And it, does that board have some level of sort of, separation from the leadership you know is it you know a, a set of objective as objective as you can get um individuals who are um you know helping to oversee um the the work within the organization um i think that those are the key things that i would look for great thanks that was very uh, clear now moving uh to another question a, a more personal one perhaps uh, you've been in this role for uh, quite a while, and can you share how you entered this field and what led you to pursue this career path? Yeah, so I entered this field um, right out of graduate school, actually, which is, I think, on the on the very young end of the spectrum in philanthropy. And, um, and actually, um, I guess, two years prior to starting my career in philanthropy, had no idea what philanthropy was. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, um, as an undergrad, um, someone said, oh, hey, there's this course on philanthropy that you would really like. Um, they knew I was interested in um, in education internationally and um, you know, kind of supporting nonprofits. And they said, you really like this course on philanthropy. And I was kind of like, what is philanthropy? I had no <laughs> idea. Um, uh and and so i looked at you know i checked it out i took the course and i was like oh this is really interesting because i was interested in um education in international development and uh and also very cognizant that given my punish positionality it wasn't necessarily me that would be the best place to actually go out and run programs um in the areas i was interested in and so i was very interested in philanthropy as a space through which um, I could support leaders who are much closer to um, some of the problems I really cared about and really in a much better position to decide what to do about them and, and give them resources to do that. So I took this course and then ultimately ended up applying for a fellowship that gave me um, 
that you know paid for me to work for a foundation um, for a year after graduating, and uh, ended up at the Hewlett Foundation for that fellowship, mm -hmm. and then um, and then stuck around. Um, so that's how I yeah how and why I entered this this field that I previously knew nothing about, and still you're meeting new people there, and they ask what you do. It's still often very hard to describe because <laughs> I think it's not a very well known space. Yes, we, we get that in the in the think tank world as well. And what is a think tank? What is a all these roles are very uh, difficult to explain. Um, so th uh, that's why we are holding these sort of sessions to be able to share what's the role to for for people to understand more. What are you, what what is the role as a as a PO? And then uh, going to. Uh, to another issue, what do you? How would you describe the level of impact and contribution that program officers make? You can talk uh, with your role of a echidna, or thinking at your time in Hula as well, or just in general. Yeah. So, obviously, one big piece that I touched on in sort of talking through what the key um, aspects of a program officer's job is one huge piece is uh, making funding decisions. So often the program officer is not the final um, arbiter or final decision maker. There's usually kind of a board approval process at play, but the program officer is, is the one making recommendations to the board and has tremendous influence over what goes in, what goes to the board and how that gets framed and who ultimately gets allocated resources um so that's that's one you know huge piece i suppose the other piece that i think is probably equally important and maybe less talked about than it should be is that program officers have a huge influence over a grantee's experience in terms of you know how they what type of support and how they how they feel a foundation shows up to support their work, um, which I think has a ripple effect on that organization's ability to really operate effectively. And so I think as much as kind of the influence about who gets funded is important, I think the influence over how that funding and other support is, is offered to organizations is really important. And the Center for Effective Philanthropy, which is does um, provide lots of supports, including kind of helps organizations, foundations run, surveys anonymous surveys of grantees to understand their experience working with a given funder finds that um there's you know individual program officers within the same foundation have th that grantees have different perceptions of mm -hmm. individual pro program officers op operating within the same foundation which should suggest that program officers have a huge influence over what a grantee's experience is even if they're operating in the same institutional constraints as their as peers um, and so I think, you know, really thinking about, you know, not just who gets the funding, but how that's provided, what, you know, what level of flexibility you're giving organizations, what level of ownership they have over the work that they're doing, um, et cetera, is really important. And, and I think, you know, we're often, you know, almost every foundation I can think of has a tagline that talks somehow about you know, making the world better, empowering people, um, you know, providing greater opportunity for people, you know, uh, um, advancing justice, et cetera, right? The, you know, we have these um, taglines that talk about wanting to empower others and, and make positive change. And I think 
thinking about how we do that in the way that we show up in relationship with grantees is, you know, a really critical um, piece of that, you know, broader change that we hope to um, engender. And uh, keeping with, with the impact as well, how, what do you hope changes in the world or do you have any expectations about what you can contribute uh, to the world if, with with this work i know that's a difficult question because how much change can one person do but wh why are you doing this uh, yeah i think would be the question <laughs> yeah i mean i think um this is such a good question it's a hard one because yeah. often we're working on really really big problems and as as much as it feels like oh you know you're granting 25 million dollars a year that feels huge um it's such a tiny drop in the bucket relative to um what governments are putting into education on an annual basis um for example um but i guess i hope that the funding we're providing helps us in in you know the case of the kid giving inch towards greater access to higher quality education and greater gender equity in that access um, to education. Um, you know, as you said in my intro, I was at the Hewlett Foundation before I couldn't give in. I was there for, for 10 years. And um, some of the things that we funded when I was at the Hewlett Foundation, I'm, I'm now kind of seven years later seeing um, the uh, fruits there from those investments and so mm -hmm. i think one of the, the challenges of this is also very can can be a very long time horizon to see to see changes but i do think you know i've seen over the course of my career you know shifts in the way in which um priorities are framed by governments and intergovernment governmental bodies so you know just to give one example uh, you know, when I started at the Hewlett Foundation, we were still operating under the Millennium Development Goals, which framed education purely in terms of whether or not children were attending school. And uh, just before I left the Hewlett Foundation, um, the Sustainable Development Goals uh, were born. And within that, education goals changed quite a bit to be much more focused on whether not just whether or not children are in school, but whether or not they were learning what they needed to know to be successful. And so I think, and and I think that some of the investments we made were part of that shift. By no means were they all of it though, right? This is we're definitely talking about contribution, not not attribution for yeah. for a lot of the change that you see in the work that you do. So at, at any rate, I do think kind of inching towards um, towards some of these big, hairy, audacious goals that we have around seeing um, better, higher quality education access for more people um, is one thing that I hope to see as a result, but also am you know, humble about how much we can contribute to that and how quickly we'll see some of those changes. But I think the other piece that I hold in my head too is just building a more vibrant ecosystem of organizations who are working on these issues that we really care about and who are situated um, close to the problems they're trying to solve. Um, because, you know, as much as we want to see progress towards better outcomes, I think we also want to see that there are organizations out there who are well-placed to continue, continue um, really tackling those problems and iterating on their approaches, as I touched on earlier. Um, uh, and I think, I think, you know, that's something very 
tangible that funders can do, right? Is really to kind of build that institutional strength and um, and ensure these organizations are out there really kind of plugging away on these issues um, uh, over the long run. Great, and uh, I have those are great uh, uh, insights, and uh, there's some follow up on that. So working together, uh, I think is is coming up uh, as a, as a threat here. You've mentioned uh, funders, uh, but also grantees. How do you work together? Because uh, change is systemic. We have uh, there's different people that, that 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 influence not only at the ground level, but with the funders that you're working with. How do you work together with other funders? And how do you how do you support grantees uh, and others in the field to work together? Is is it done on a country level, a regional level, uh, networks? How does that work? I suppose all of the above in some ways to, to answer your question. Um, I mean, so we we participate in various funder networks. There's an international education funders group that we participate in um, and engage with other funders in. There's an early childhood funders group that we um, that we engage in for some of the work we do around um, uh, pre preschool and pre primary education work. Um, so there, so there are very various funder networks that we engage in. Um, we uh, work to, we do a lot of work to sort of individually connect grantees, where we see threads of commonality across them, and um, and then in some instances where we also see kind of greater opportunities for collective work, we fund those those organizations additionally to make that collective work happen. So mm -hmm. to give an example there, we have funded in East Africa a um, collaborative around life skills and a similar collaborative in India around life skills, it's, which is a space that is rather nebulous. I mean, when you say life skills, lots of different organizations will define it very differently and will measure it very differently, et cetera. And that becomes a challenge when it comes to how do you then influence government around embedding life skills within their education systems, right? If it's if it's unclear what those skills are and how you measure them. And so we saw an opportunity for organizations who are really working in those spaces to come together and jointly define some of the key skills that they see as critical for embedding within school systems and to jointly develop relevant, uh, contextually relevant ways to measure those skills. Um, so, so there are you know, instances where we come in and say, how can we actually provide the resources that enable this collaboration to happen, um, which goes much, much beyond just, you know, organizations connecting one on one. Um, and similarly, I would say there are a few areas at the funder level where we have come in to say, how do we, you know, provide some resources and leadership to help funders really come together and make new things happen. And so one example there is we did an analysis of our portfolio several years ago that um, looking to see, you know, how much, how many of our grants were going to organizations that were, you know, really led by and based in the countries in which they were doing their work. And we found that a lot of, you know, when we sliced and diced the data that our research oriented grant making was particularly heavily going to Global North organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really wanted to kind of shift that. And we knew, as you probably know, know from all of your work with think tanks, that this is not sort of like a quick, you know, just build institute, you know, just make a few grants. <laughs> but it was, you know, how do we 
actually channeled more resources into um, African education research um, led by Africans um, and and felt like that was something that was going to require more funders than just ourselves. Um, and so, you know, partnered actually with on think tanks to run a forum uh, last year to look to, to engage African education researchers around what is you know, what do they see as some of the barriers and obstacles to more education um, research happening from the continent and to and have set, since kind of developed what are some of the key principles, brought other funders around those to say, how can we kind of advance this together? So so I think there are, you know, issues that we that we where we really care about it, kind of actually funding that collaborative work more intentionally. Great, thanks. And for those of you listening who want to read more about this, there's a blog post by Enrique on uh, the, the Global North, Global South, and how uh, research uh, funds are allocated. And now continuing on, on the questions, one final question on this. Uh, when, when working with grantees on the level, uh, like for example, in the life skills or others, is it usually in, initiated by you, this, uh, this kind of push to collaborate? or does it come from, from grantees? How do you see that balance? So this is another one of the sort of thread the needle <laughs> things <laughs> that you know I alluded to earlier, um, because on the one hand, it's very much the case that collaboration will not be successful unless there's a real demand for it from those who are collaborating. It is not an easy thing to do. It requires a lot of time, it requires, um, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, willingness to navigate tricky negotiations across organizations, etc. Um, and, and so those who are a part of the collaboration really have to be all in and see that there's, uh, that it's, that it's in their interest and that they'll achieve more together than they would individually. On the other hand, it's also the case that individual organizations don't always have the perspective of that a funder has of where there might be intersections and and opportunities to really achieve more together than they could individually and so you know in the in the case of the life skills work for example part of what we did was i, I think we sort of saw that there were potential opportunities and then it was a matter of being very careful about about not saying this must happen, but about funding the possibility that it could happen, uh, um, funding some early kind of research um, that engaged folks to to see if it if it had traction, um, and you know funding enough time and trust building across organizations to see if it was worth pursuing further. And so I think it takes kind of um, yes, maybe seeing some ideas but bringing them to the community in a way that they really have final decision making power and ownership over whether it's a yes or a no uh, worthwhile collaboration great thanks i really like this response on funders having this very type view of who's doing what um and uh, then moving on to another question uh and going back to the impact the on of of your decisions on resource allocation and the lives of people. Uh, how does this role affect you on a personal level? I think uh, I think that being a program officer, you really live with sort of 
a, a lot of sort of existential angst, or it's easy to have a lot of existential angst, and and kind of um, there, there's there's a lot of dichotomy. So I think on the one hand, you can feel a, like a lot of angst about your enormous influence over where a lot of money gets invested and go down the rabbit hole of, you know, what right do I actually have to direct these resources? Um, and on the other hand, I think you can also go down the rabbit hole of, gosh, what am I actually doing? Like, I don't do anything. Ultimately, it's the organizations I fund who are who are doing things or often, you know, they're, you know, in, empowering teachers who are the ones who are actually changing the lives of children or, you know, that you're, you're just multiple links away from some of the actual change that you want to see happen. And it can feel like you're um, sort of at best a, a small cog in a very large machine. Um, and so I, I don't know, I think you kind of live with that duality of like, on the one hand, um, sort of angst around what your right is to be there. And on the other hand, angst around whether you actually whether you actually make a difference in any way at all. Um, and so I guess, um, I guess it's a little bit of how it affects me. I think I've, I've been plagued by those, those sort of doubts, um, uh, both, both sides of the, the equation. Um, and I think ultimately, I guess the way where I land is in really focusing in on how I engage and show up with my grantees and in support of them and how, you know, can I, you know, if I can build meaningful relationships with them, if I can show up in supporting, in supportive ways, you know, I think that's one way to, I mean, I think both that's, you know, personally fulfilling um, and hopefully as a way to kind of ripple outwards towards, you know, some of the broader changes that we, that we want to see. But um, yeah, I do think it's a, it, it is a strange position to be in. I, I, I really like this, uh, the anxiety uh, of the role and, and uh, the difficulties of being one step or two or three steps removed from the actual uh, work. It, it makes it harder, definitely, to 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 feel your, your direct impact. And on, on that, on being one step removed and uh, what you were mentioning before uh, about grantee, so there's always power symmetries between funders and grantees and this having a bird's eye view and control over resources makes relationships uh, difficult or a bit more uh, yeah difficult to to manage uh, what dynamics do you notice in interaction with grantees versus other funders and uh, which what has been difficult to lead uh, to work with and what is easy or what do you find works to do away with this power symmetries and have a, a balanced relationship and what, what makes uh, relationships harder yeah i think this is one of the hardest parts of the role is navigating um these power asymmetries and you know i think i think you can it's easy to fall in one of two traps. You know, one trap that's easy to fall into is thinking that because of the power asymmetries, you must know everything because everyone, people treat you as if you are, um, you know, a very important person who has very good ideas. <laughs> um, and and I think it, you know, one trap to fall into is just you know believing all of that. I think the other trap that you can fall into is actually kind of the opposite knowing that people are perceiving you and, and treating you in that way feeling like oh my you know having a lot of um 
imposter syndrome and feeling mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, actually, I'm, I, I don't really know anything. Um, and so, yeah, so kind of uh, trying to be steady and not let it go to your head, but also not let it quite let it make you question everything that you do um, is something to navigate. And um, I think also there are just there are lots of power dynamics at play, right? There's there's the fact that you hold kind of the power of the purse uh, and grantees don't. Uh, layered on top of that are kind of uh, power asymmetries that have to do with race and colonialism and gender dynamics and and all of that. And so it, it is a lot to try to to sort through. Um, and I don't think I have any perfect answers, but I guess a few things that I try to do. So one, I I often will name the dynamic um, mm-hmm. uh, in conversations with organizations. So you know, one of the things that's challenging is I think sometimes as a funder, you can pose a question and an organization you're talking to can think, oh, that's what you want me to do. It's like, it's, it, perceive it as a leading question or, you know, um, uh, and kind of be tempted to um, to go in that direction. So sometimes I, I just, you know, caveat what I say with, uh, you know, look, I'm not, you know, I, I know that, um, that because I'm the funder, sometimes what I say can be viewed as kind of an agenda for what I think you should do. This is a, you know, but this is a genuine question or, you know, sometimes kind of just naming what the dynamic is can, mm-hmm. um, can be helpful. Um, and the other piece is um, really just, it, it comes to kind of the fundamentals of building relationships, right? And so showing up with a, a lot of, um, uh, curiosity, doing a lot more listening than speaking in conversations, trying to build strong connections um, so that people feel like they can trust me as a person and not just as, you know, and and not just think of kind of the power I hold. Um, uh, I think the other piece is, you know, being open about sharing my own failures and or sharing what other grantees are struggling with to just normalize that, you know, it's okay to like be transparent about what is and isn't working. Because I think that's one of the hardest, that's one of the ways this power dynamic shows up is that it can be really hard to get genuine to learn about what is and isn't working if if organizations are scared to name failures or name what they're struggling with. And so just really kind of normalizing, normalizing that um, in, in conversations by sharing my own failures or other uh, failures of other grantees. And um, and you know, inviting um, inviting that kind of conversation regularly, um, I suppose. But it's um it's a super it's a super tricky space to navigate, and I think it's especially tricky because you're often working against bad practices of other people in the sector, right? And so, if other funders um, are are punitive towards organizations for sharing failure, that's gonna make them that much less likely to be transparent in their relationships with you. Um, uh, so we see that, I see that showing up all the time, right? I've, I've been in situations where, um, you know, I've invited a general support proposal from an organization and they share a proposal for project funding instead, I think because that's what other, how other funders, mm-hmm. what other funders are asking of them. And so I think, you know, the, the fact that, um, we're we're building, kind of working against years of um, other philanthropic practices and um, and and spaces in which that power has been abused by funders. It, it makes it all the harder to sort of work against it.
Great, thanks. I really like the name in the dynamic um, uh, strategy. And uh, finally, the last final question, and going back to the beginning of the difficulties of understanding what a, the PO, PO role is, is what would you like, uh, if one thing, what would you like people to know about the role of a PO? What would be your highlight or your or your what you would like to explain or something key that you would like to share about the role of appeal? What I would say to someone new to philanthropy or to my younger self as I was entering the field is that it is an endlessly complex space that you will continuously be learning. Uh, and unpacking as you go, that there's that it's not a space where I think you can, you know, just learn five, you know, if you can just master these five things and um, uh, enter the space, you'll be a good program officer. It's, it's something that I, you know, 17 years in, I'm still learning to do better at. And so it's a, it's a job that requires just kind of a constant openness to learning um, and, um and and trying to you know do it as well as you can but operating under you know a lot of uncertainty and so it it requires um it requires a, just a lot of constant curiosity and learning um but if you're willing to kind of put in that work i also think there are just huge rewards in terms of the relationships you will build and and the broader impact that you can achieve great Thank you very much, Dana. That was a lovely talk with you. I really enjoyed this and I hope that you did too. And thank you to everybody listening and tune in for our next edition of the OTT Talks.